Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, they checked my ID at the door, let me in anyway. (laughs) Good evening to you. It's just five after five. It's the ninth day of November, and we are... By golly, just two weeks and two days away from Thanksgiving. Yeah, I think there's a little room here for turkey. Yeah, we'll make it fit one way or the other, right? (laughs) Well, in any event, good to have you with us. we got a lot to talk about this evening. A little bit later on, you know, there's been a lot of consternation in the political arena in in recent years, if you hadn't taken, taken notice. And it's led to some conversation pertaining to whether or not the balance of powers has become unbalanced. Truth be told, there's been some modifications to the way we do things down through the decades since the Constitution was first uh, put together in 1887 that's kind of drifted from the original intent of the Founding Fathers. I know shock and horror, but that at least is the end result. So what if we ponder the notion of starting over? Some people say we need to keep the Electoral College. Others say get rid of it. Some say nine members of the U.S. Supreme Court is sufficient. Others say, oh, no, in a Roosevelt sort of fashion, we need more. Some say the executive branch has too much power. Others, not enough. What if we just started from scratch? What might a new Constitution look like? While some embrace the idea, others perish the thought. We'll talk about that. Talk show host Bob Zadak joins us later on in this hour of Lifeline. Meanwhile, we want to welcome in to lead off the conversation tonight our dear friend, the host of Life Matters, the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, Brian Johnston, with a bit of an update. And, uh, you know, Brian, over the last several days, there's been a little of a, a bit of a uh, where in the world is Waldo <laughs> search mm. for uh, Gavin Newsom. Some of us would just prefer that he go away and stay away, uh, largely because unlike his predecessor, who from time to time would veto some of the nonsense handed to his desk by the California state legislature, this governor instead seems to embrace every bit of uh, far-fetched, far-reaching, over-the-top uh, liberal ideas ideas that the legislature can come up with. And um, this, of course, leads us to some new bills that had been under consideration we'd warned listeners about that have now been signed by the governor. And some of this stuff is, um, well, in in the simplest of terms, pretty nasty. Tell us what's going on. Yes, Greg, we have talked about it, but they were signed by the governor. Um, And we'll quickly go through them. Assembly Bill 1184 is rather extraordinary because it requires your health uh, insurance company to pay for treatments on your child, but not tell you. And that's a pretty amazing um, assertion because it is your health insurance, but more to the point, it's for privacy and particularly for procedures like abortions and treatment, in quotes, treatment regarding gender identity. So your health insurance will be billed. It will not appear on the bill that you get, but your health insurance company will pay for these secret treatments done by physicians without parents' knowledge or consent. And again, it includes abortion and it includes 
the notion of changing your daughter's or your son's gender, and you're not going to find out. An extraordinary measure, and uh, this has to be litigated, and we're, we're looking for attorneys that will step up for that. One bill that is being litigated had to do with SB 245. It has to do with uh, taking the... Um, the vaccine, there's been some problems with the vaccine, as we know. We don't have time to explicate all of the problems with the mRNA vaccines. This is not a true vaccine in the historical sense. This is an experimental vaccine. I have interviewed the doctor who designed the platform, the messenger RNA platform, and he's leading an effort in Rome, the Rome Summit, to encourage doctors to continue to offer treatments that the COVID, the only answer is not this, quote, vaccine. There are very effective treatments, but they've been denied to many patients. So there's a whole issue about that. But as you know, people are protesting this. It turns out that they don't want this discussed in front of facilities that provide these vaccines. Ironically, that would include Planned Parenthood. And we've only touched lightly on it going back to the days of Obamacare, but Planned Parenthood no longer is an abortion specialist. We do know they do abortions. They're the world's largest provider of abortions. But quietly under Obamacare, Planned Parenthood has established itself as a general health center. That's right. They want to be health providers in the most general sense and therefore have Obamacare funding flow right through them. Well, I was to say, in and, the end, doesn't that essentially become a red herring in the sense, uh, Brian, that they can gain a greater spe- a sense of, uh, and I'm using my air quotes here, legitimacy by saying, oh, no, no, that's just that's just one small component of what we do. I recall several years ago where there was a big deal of, of, of some brouhaha that they were suggesting that they were providing uh, mammograms and uh, breast cancer awareness education that in the end we discovered after much investigation that that was basically kind of just smoke and mirrors, again, attempting to use that as cover to get their hands on more and more federal dollars, when in reality everybody knows that isn't their primary mission, never has been, never will be. But if they think they can lend an air of legitimacy to what they do by expanding into these other arenas, they're happy to do so. When at the end of the day, um, uh, providing abortions and and uh, and so forth is really what they're all about. That's right. And we have to look at the reality of, of what's happened to our culture and we actually, it sounds far-fetched, but you know from my book that Russia was the first nation in the entire world that proclaimed that free abortions should be part of any government system that's bringing forth change and revolution, because that's explicitly a Marxist statement. Karl Marx said that, not only in the Communist Manifesto, but also in his final book, The Rise of the family, private property, and the state, and abortion has been established as an essential predicate of Marxist theory. What that did in Russia is it destroyed the entire medical profession. And if you talk to people who lived behind the Iron Curtain during those years, the medical profession was completely destroyed. Many men did not go into medicine because culturally men don't tend to go to doctors anyway. 
women tend to go to doctors. And in Russia, doctors typically were the older women, the babushkas, and mostly the focus primarily. And at one time in Russia, the average Russian woman had eight abortions. It was a routine part of living in Russia and being a woman. And the abortion mentality has destroyed medicine. We see that now in the U.S. We see that abortion is considered an essential predicate of, quote, health care. This, and then there's doctors that accept that. And there's a culture that is accepting that. If you're silent about that, then medicine accepts it, accepts the killing of babies as part of health care. That is transforming medicine as we understand it. And it's being dramatically changed right now. We're witnessing it. We just see it slowly like the frogs boiling in the water. But the fact is, is that the medical profession has been dramatically altered. And abortion has been an essential part of that. Before 1973, no doctor, not only did not kill babies, a doctor never killed anybody. That was the most heinous thing a doctor could do. It's become widely accepted. Now, back to 380. And what we're dealing with is that the, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just getting to SB 380. That was the third bill. And SB 380 is the expansion of assisted suicide. It no longer has to be a request made in writing 15 days before the patient is killed. It can be a verbal request. And it only has to be 48 hours before that person is terminated. Now, I've just done a study, and you can look this up. In Holland, in the Netherlands, there's the Remelink Report, which is an annual report of the use of euthanasia in the Netherlands. And that has grown exponentially since it began. And most nursing homes in the Netherlands routinely use this. The polls show that the majority of patients that are killed by their doctors, the family is never informed. The family does not know about it. Simply, or they pass. You get the report from the nursing home. I need to tell you, because you know I've been involved with nursing homes, that is what is happening slowly now in the United States of America. And usually the way it's done first is they quit giving the patient food and water. And then they medicate them so the person can't call out and ask for food and water. What happens then, you die. You're not dying from an underlying illness. So... SB 380 now is an explicit change of supposedly of someone who's asking to die. Well, it doesn't have to be in writing anymore. It doesn't have to be a 15-day waiting period. The corruption of medicine is happening before our eyes. Medicine is being used to kill, and if you're not aware of this, if you're not visiting your families and nursing homes, if you're not aware, medicine's just going to keep doing what it's doing, and it will dispose of human beings that it's tired of taking care of. They cost money. We need to free the bed. Yeah, and sadly, on the heels of that, we we see a part of our society that bends over backwards looking after animals, which I don't decry, not at all. I mean, there's God's creatures, too. But when we suddenly see a, a juxtaposition um, of, of one over the other, that we can freely dispense with human life, and yet we pull out the stops to make absolutely certain that we're not abusing animal life. you got to really wonder what's, what's behind this paradigm shift 
in our priorities. It used to be that we bent over backwards to look after the most vulnerable of our society from cradle to grave, and now they're looked at as inconveniences. And it's a sad state of affairs and and definitely demonstrative of man's um, fallen condition. Brian Johnston will go into such matters in greater detail as he does each Saturday morning at 11 a.m. on Life Matters. We invite you to tune in for the program. Meanwhile, a great resource to be on top of these measures, what laws are being signed, um, and their impact on your life, available by going to the California Pro-Life website at californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. Our thanks to the update, Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Over the last, oh goodness, I don't know, maybe 30 years, perhaps a little bit longer, a little bit less, there's been a growing sense of frustration amongst those that follow such matters and care over the manner in which we've seen a slow erosion of respect for our Constitution. And by that, I mean it's run the gambit of presidents who attempt to pack the court, as in Roosevelt and and more recently, Biden's expressing a desire to do same to what appears to be a um, blurring of lines of demarcation between the three branches of government and then complaints that the president acts too much like the legislature. Of course, then again, sometimes the argument goes even the courts tend to seem to be more legislative in the nature of their work as opposed to judicial. And this has had some questioning whether or not this wonderful instrument that is now 234 years old, whether or not it's high time that we revisit it, meaning um, if we could apply what we know today and you could have some of these wonderful men like uh, Jefferson and Madison and others be here to recraft the Constitution through, shall we say, more modern eyes, what might that look like? Well, there's been a, a recent experiment in, in looking at proposals from three distinct groups of thought between the libertarian, conservative, and progressive, the results of which in some cases are startling and other cases not altogether surprising. You might be encouraged perhaps to learn that the notion of throw the whole thing away and start from scratch was really proposed by none, but in some arenas, Maybe some um, tweaking necessary, and some of that tweaking perhaps to take us back to um, more um, fairly enforcing the original intent of the Founding Fathers. Let's talk about it. Joining us is nationally syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., on 860 AM, The Answer, our sister station. By the way, more information about Bob's work online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. I was just on his website a couple of days ago, and it's brand spanking new with lots of fresh information, so you'll want to check that out. 
And um, we'll talk more about that perhaps later on. Meanwhile, Bob, always great to have you with us. So what about this idea? Um, I, I've always been nervous. Even when there's been an occasional call for a, a constitutional convention, I'm thinking, yeah, it depends on who calls that convention and controls that convention. They start to meddling with the Constitution, and they could really ruin a good thing. So what of this idea of sitting down and pour, sort of putting uh, fresh modern eyes on this historical document? Well, Craig, first of all, thank you for this wonderful topic that you suggested. It is really, um, it's really um, candy for the brain if you're a student of politics or even a casual observer. It is, it opens up all kinds of, it lets your imagination fly. And uh, the organization you refer to is called the National Constitution Center. It is a nonprofit organization uh, in Philadelphia, no surprise, funded by Congress, and its sole goal is to increase the understanding and appreciation for the Constitution. And it does a wonderful job. Its website, you can just be careful. If you visit that website, you may never leave. If you visit their interactive museum in Philadelphia, you may never leave. You may want to see if you can rent rooms by the month there. So it is just a wonderful learning uh, experience to associate with the National Constitution Center. Well, the National Constitution Center uh, went about with a wonderful idea. It invited three teams, as you said, a libertarian team, a progressive team, and a conservative team to rewrite the Constitution in accordance with their principles. And the teams worked independently of each other, and they presented their work product. And it's available at the center. And it is so interesting because when you start reading it, at least for me, when I read The Libertarian, I said, wow, does a country exist with this Constitution? I'm heading there right now, hmm. and I'm, I'm going to become a citizen. And we're going to only be able to discuss a few of the, of the many topics and changes, but they are thought-provoking, interesting, and they point out some of the defects in the present Constitution. Now, I'm quick to say these defects weren't necessarily the mistake of the founders. Many of the topics we may discuss this evening were not mistakes in the Constitution, but were misinterpretations in the eyes or in the minds of many, misinterpretations of the Constitution by the Supreme Court, which is kind of like, uh, I'll say villain, but not in a sinister sense. They have wrecked havoc to many of the provisions if you say to yourself, we wish the Constitution would have remained the way the founders wrote it. Now, if you say the Constitution wasn't so good, then you might favor what the Supreme Court has done. I don't. Uh, I like the Constitution as it was written to us, and I say if, uh, if the country wants the Constitution changed, we have a way to do it by amendment. The founders gave us that, not through unelected the Supreme Court. But in any event, the exercise itself is quite interesting. And we can discuss any one of a zillion different topics. One topic that's very timely 
And to some degree, I'm going to spend my time in this conversation discussing the libertarian changes. But I will also mention where I can whether or not these changes were agreed to by the progressive and conservative or not. And what's so interesting is the areas where all three teams actually agreed on the changes to be made. And one of them is the impeachment uh, provision in the Supreme Court. As you know, Impeachment is provided for in the Constitution, and impeachment can be done if the president is found guilty of, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors. And there has been a struggle since the founding whether that means the president has to have actually committed a crime, a high crime, or whether he can be impeached for other reasons. Well, all three teams felt that The impeachment clause should not be limited to crimes, but should be limited if the legislative branches found that the president is unfit to carry on the duties of the office um, or has violated the public trust. In other words, no crime is necessary. Uh, So all three teams felt that we make it too hard to impeach the president. I couldn't agree more. Um, I much prefer a parliamentary system where we look and see how the prime minister is treated in England, in Canada, in in Australia, and in other uh, parliamentary governments. And there, when the prime minister gets simply a vote of no confidence, in this case by parliament, he is fired. And there's not a lot of drama. They don't make movies about it. He's just fired. Take a hike. We'll get somebody new. With no drama, he goes about his life, and and that's the end of it. We associate so much drama with the impeachment that we often are stuck with bad presidents who we simply can't get rid of. So that's just one idea, just to start the conversation going, about how all three teams felt that the impeachment rule, as interpreted, not as written, but as interpreted, maybe could be changed. And it's fascinating because there's so much that's kind of been borrowed from British common law, and yet we sometimes are so, on another hand, hesitant to, to, to have anything to do with British law out of deference to the notion that this was the, the country and the king from which we were breaking. And yet you make a valid point, which I'd like to pick up a little bit more in detail, Bob, after the break, this idea that we, we now have a president who has been twice impeached. And we kind of approach this with the sense of fear and trepidation that this is a terrible thing that um, one branch of the government would call uh, into uh, discipline, so to speak, another branch. And yet, as you aptly point out, there are plenty of parliamentary countries that do this that find themselves the prime minister that doesn't seem to be working out, that there is unified dissatisfaction with, both uh, within the population as well as within the House of Commons, or in this case the, the Congress, where a vote of no confidence is handed down. 
that prime minister leaves, a new one comes in, and the world continues. We act as if the world somehow ends when we consider such an action. And and these, perhaps thinking, uh, you know, more in a forward fashion, uh, are maybe some of the things that could be considered. Now, again, I, I always get nervous when we have talk about the Constitutional Convention because of the kind of uh, nonsense that could potentially go on. But I find it's fascinating that these three very distinct groups from very different political viewpoints mostly came back and said, you know, this is not a document that we would tear up and start from scratch, but rather do some fine-tuning to. Let's come back and pick up that conversation after the break. Bob Zadek with us today. You can find out more about his broadcast. He's on the air here in the Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock, and you can check him out online as well at bobzadek.com, including podcasts of recent shows and other resources. Bob's written a number of books, too, which are available to you online at bobzadek.com. Time out. Back with more of our dialogue with Bob Zadek as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Visiting with Bob Zadek of The Bob Zadek Show and talking a bit about um, this sort of thought experiment. What if we sat down, had three distinct groups revisit the Constitution as formulated in, what, 1887, and uh, make some adjustments? I find it fascinating considering... Bob, how divergent, diverse rather, the the, uh, the political opinions uh, and persuasion may be between these group, two groups on the conservative side, the progressives and progressives and, and libertarians. That ironically, all three had not altogether dissimilar feelings regarding such matters as impeachment and the power or excessive same as it comes to the executive branch. You're exactly right, Craig. And by the way. It was 1787, not 1887. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> wrong, wrong century. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, you might have had a typo in your text. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a little, 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 little dys- dyslexic there. <laughs> and by the way, one other, if I can make just a comment. Right before we went to break, you talked about, you referred to impeachment as disciplining the president. I would like to very softly take issue with that word. I, I think when we are impeaching the president, it's not a criminal trial, and it's not a punishment. Um, we are just saying, you're the wrong guy for the job. It doesn't mean he's a bad fellow or a bad woman. It doesn't mean they are not likable. It just means for this particular job, they are not suited. So if we take away the concept of discipline, you get closer to what I think ought to be the way impeachment is looked at. When you fire an employee, it's not necessarily discipline. You might put him in a different job, but he's just the wrong person for that job. That's the only comment I wanted to make right before we went to break. Okay, let's talk a bit about this notion of excessive use of of power, or, or some might even term it to be abuse of power by the executive branch. And one of the big concerns has been that there has been a unique shift in terms of the ability of, say, for example, Congress to look at executive orders and say, yeah, that's kind of starting to feel like you're doing our job and to have the ability to essentially come in and and override executive orders. At what point did that disappear? Well, 
doesn't quite reflect upon what happened to the Constitution, but more directly, it was the behavior of Congress. We have to remember, uh, not remember, but if you understand the type of presidency the founders gave us, the president was supposed to be an administrator. The president had almost no discretion there wasn't anything where the president had to decide what to do. The only thing where the president had primary authority is in managing the armed forces, in negotiating treaties, and a few other odds and ends. The president, other than that, had not much authority to do stuff other than to quote the Constitution, see that the laws are faithfully carried out. But what Congress has done, Congress, in order to preserve their own jobs, they have delegated authority to both the president, to the executive branch, and indirectly to the courts. So the Congress, in order that they don't get voted out of office, they delegate responsibility to do unpleasant things that are necessary to the executive branch. Let the president get the heat. So Congress passes broad statutes and said, here, we have to have clean, we declare there have to be clean water in the country. Now, executive branch, just get it done. So we vote for clean water. And all the heavy lifting is done by the executive branch. That's nothing wrong with the Constitution. That's the abdication of responsibility by the cowards in the legislature. So uh, the Constitution provides for that. The Constitution, there is a principle called the non-delegation principle, which means Congress cannot delegate legislative responsibility to the other branches, but they do. And there's no real way to enforce that. So uh, the libertarian constitution, they often, some of the drafters of the libertarian team observed that they're fixing the constitution is to take every clause in the original constitution and add after each clause, and we really mean it. <laughs> if we just did that, then Congress couldn't mess up. So that's how the libertarians would approach many of these problems. And we mean it. You cannot delegate. You cannot commandeer. And, Craig, one of the most interesting uh, approaches to a whole bunch of revisions that the libertarian team approached is that which you and I have spoken about on your show, which is the principle of federalism, that the states have a, are a co-equal branch of government, and they have an important role to play in governing, and they are closer to their populations than is the federal government. Well, the libertarian constitution, in many ways, re-established uh, power in the states uh, and, take, uh, and took it away from Washington, which is the way the founders created our country to begin with. Just to give you one example, um, the new, the Libertarian Constitution prohibits Washington from giving money to the states with conditions, so that we are giving you money 
to build roads, but you have to maintain a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, and you have to have orange signs with blue coloring, is all that stuff. It was never the founders' intention that Washington, D.C. will tell Wyoming what speed limit it can have, but they do that with money. Well, under the Libertarian Constitution, that cannot be done anymore. So Washington either keep or either keep the money and don't give it to the states, which is intolerable, or you give it to the states as a block grant and you can't give them rules. Let each state decide what's good for the state. That's one of a whole bunch of examples where power is delivered back to the states and localities under a libertarian constitution where power has been eroded from the states to Washington. And one other, Craig, if I may, is... The Libertarian Constitution would repeal the 16th Amendment. The 16th Amendment to the Constitution gave us the income tax. The income tax was unconstitutional in the Founders' Constitution that they gave us. It took an amendment to make the income tax constitutional, and the Libertarians would undo that and would go back to the original plan where you cannot raise money with an individual tax on individuals. You have to raise money in other ways, probably by a sales tax or a VAT, something like that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's too many ways in which um, the regulation of commerce, uh, quite frankly, has been way over um, overreached by Washington, D.C. that kind of allows them uh, ipso facto to, to meddle into other areas. Uh, so a bit, a bit of a curtailing of that power might be a fascinating um, item to look at. The other notion here, too, we can talk about this after the break. Uh, you know, we're, we're troubled by the idea that it seems, particularly in the House, that the minute they get elected, they're off rerunning meaning that they're they're busy on the next campaign to raise the necessary funds so that two years hence uh, they're able to uh, to be reelected to office and they seem to be spending more time talking with donors than talking with constituents and maybe the notion of extending the term of members of the House might not be a bad idea. And uh, the other idea, too, that I'll have you elaborate on when we come back after the break, and that is the manner in which the Senate is elected. And even to the notion of how many senators are assigned per state. Bob Zadek with us tonight. His program, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., The Bob Zadek Show. You can check him out online at B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, BobZadek.com. Back with more thoughts as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Bob Zadek's with us tonight. We've been talking about this notion of are there deficiencies in the Constitution, or maybe better put, when we talk about the vision of the Founding Fathers and the crafting of this document more than 230 years ago, were there things that obviously, logically, they just certainly could not have anticipated? Amazingly, their sense of foresight and forethought pretty on the money, but a few areas that maybe need some tweaking. One that's always troubled me, and that is this notion that in the end of the day, especially in the House, Bob, they seem to get elected and then immediately start focusing on getting reelected. And so as a result, their real focus on doing the people's work um, you know, takes a back seat. Should that is, be something we look at along with maybe even a return of the original 
method in which the members of the United States Senate were elected, and that is not through the general public, but rather through the House? I'll give you the libertarian response and then the response of the other teams, because it's quite interesting. This is an air. The libertarian team didn't focus so much on the architecture of the government, that is, the mechanics of government. They focused more on the relationship between citizens and government and preservation of citizens' rights vis-a-vis the government. But um, there was, as to the direct election of senators, that's a really interesting topic. That's the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, the one that followed the income tax, 1913, and those two amendments, side by side, the same year, undid entirely the government the founders gave us. Now, here's why the 17th Amendment did that. It's directly to your point, Craig. Before the 17th Amendment in 1913, senators were not elected by the public. They were elected by state legislatures. So it was a political rather than a democratic function. The state house in Sacramento got together, and one way or another, states decided how to do it. They picked through the process of the legislature who the senators would be. Now, that was really important because the senators, when they went to Washington, who were they representing? The states, not the people. Why is that important? Because now when Congress in Washington passes laws that compel the states to do something and the states to bear an expense and to uh, adjust the speed limit and the voting age and the drinking age and the smoking age, all this stuff which is not Washington's business, it's a state's business, those laws would never be passed if the senators were representing the states rather than the people. So the change uh, in 1913 to the direct election of senators by the people rather than by the state houses was a very big deal, and it caused the states as a political unit to lose a lot of their power, and they became far more subordinated to Washington than they were before. So you raise such an interesting point, and the libertarian constitution says we should go back to the way it was before those horrible 16th and 17th amendments and go back to the state houses electing senators. Now, I should mention as a postscript, because it's politic, it's interesting history. What was happening around 1913 during the Progressive Era? Teddy Roosevelt was president. What was happening is there was pressure to have more direct democracy, and more and more states. Although we had this, the state houses electing senators, what they would do is they would run an election. So the people got to vote for the senators, and then the state houses would send to Washington the senators who the people elected. So we ended up having direct election by the back door. So to some degree, that change to direct election started anyway, but I believe that caused a serious erosion in states' power and, and upset 
the delicate balance between Washington and the states that the founders had given us. So you're exactly right to focus on that issue. And, and the frightening thing is it goes to this heart of accountability right to the people, because at the end of the day, the House is really the branch that is closest to the people. It is representative of the populations of each respective state. And and we look at this terrible stalemate that goes on right now. And even the notion of seeing, I mean, I, could our founding fathers ever envisioned a time when you could potentially have a single senator calling essentially the shots for the entire country? So a bill gets passed in the House, but it comes to an absolute screeching standstill in the Senate because there's just close enough of a balance of power there that even with the VP being the tiebreaker on a 50-50, I don't think we ever envisioned a time when it would be so often 50-50 and that yet one member of the Senate could essentially wind up having as much power as the president, if not more. The, the founders envisioned the senators to be a group of wise, they would call them men, they were men at the time, wise men who could take the long view since they had uh, four-year, they had uh, six-year terms, and they didn't have to worry about the passions going through the country at any given time because their election was far in the future. George Washington analyzed or gave the metaphor that when your cup of tea is too hot, you pour some of the tea into the saucer so it will cool off. In Washington's mind, the cup of hot tea was the house and the saucer was the Senate. It cooled everything down a bit. And that was the role the founders envisioned for the Senate. Um, one of the teams, I think it was the progressive team, suggested, to your point before the break, about how about always running for election, that the House should have a three-year term, so they're not running for office all the time. The presidency should be a six-year term, but not re- can't be reelected, only one term, and the Senate should be a nine-year term, so they could take the long view and be quite calm. I thought about that a lot, and I couldn't help but feel, even though it wasn't a libertarian approach, that it kind of had appealed to me. And the point of all this is, it gets us thinking, Craig. We start to use our imagination, and we see how things can be different without an upheaval that maybe it is time for a change, and that is healthy for the country. And all of this is the result of the National Constitution Center's project in Philadelphia. And, you know, a dialogue that maybe we need to uh, get engaged in, because there are certainly challenges, as we've been seeing for some time, and the sense of stalemate and and the lack of progress and very urgent matters facing the nation. And we wind up finding members of both the Senate and the House more engaged in serving their party as opposed to serving their constituents or the nation. Some fascinating thoughts. And by the way, these kinds of thoughts... 
part of the dialogue every Sunday at 8 o'clock on the Bob Zadek Show. He gets an opportunity to uh, interview newsmakers and thought leaders from all over the country. It's a compelling hour. It's, in fact, one of the most compelling hours in radio today. Check him out, Bob Zadek, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on our sister station here locally in the Bay Area, 860 a.m. The Answer. More info on the web at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Dot com. 601 from KFAX. Let's get you updated on some traffic here.